Welcome to Continuum, a podcast dedicated to your health. We'll introduce you to individuals throughout the healthcare world, from patients to providers, with a focus on inspiration and education. In this episode, Kristen Hollinger, research associate at Johns Hopkins University, joins us to discuss multiple sclerosis, or MS. Kristen explains what MS is, how our understanding of MS has changed over time, and the development of treatments for patients diagnosed with the disease. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Kristen Hollinger, PhD. We are here to talk about MS. I am not going to try and pronounce what MS stands for. I'm going to let Kristen do that, and then maybe I'll be able to pronounce it properly. Um, but anyway, Kristen, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Kristen, first and foremost, can you tell us who you are, what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, so my name is Kristen Hollinger, and I am a research associate at Johns Hopkins University. I'm affiliated with the departments of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and neurology, and I also work in the Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery Group. And so my primary job at Johns Hopkins is to work with a team of chemists, biologists, biochemists to develop new treatments for neurological diseases, including multiple sclerosis, or MS. Thank you. And yes, you are absolutely an underachiever. Uh, It's very clear. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump right into some of these um, uh, topics we're going to discuss today. First and foremost... What what does a day look like for you at Johns Hopkins? What do you do as a researcher there? Um, yeah, so every day is different, which is one of the aspects of my job that I like the most. Um, so a typical day can range from attending meetings and seminars to discuss ongoing grants and projects. So at Johns Hopkins, you're responsible for bringing in your own money to fund your research. There are institutions like the NIH, the National Institute of Health, where if you're a researcher there, the government funds your money. So taxpayer Mm. money goes directly to the research. Whereas at institutions like Johns Hopkins, you have to bring in your own money. So you write the grants and you bring in the money and you actually also have to pay the university back to kind of rent the space. So they take overheads as well. Wow. And so you're like running your own little small business in your lab. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Hmm. so we have to, you know, grants are very important to keeping your lab (laughs) running. Um, In addition to that, publications are also really important. So we do all of this work, and how do we communicate it with the general public and the audience? So we have to publish manuscripts. And so the way that that works is you, you know, write up your results, you submit it to one of many journals, and they're ranked differently. You know, there's some that are really, really highly ranked, and you know, they're considered the best of the best, and some are a little bit lower. But in general, all journals are peer-reviewed. So uh, you okay. submit your work, and they assign your article to some reviewers. So other, you know, colleagues in the field who have similar areas of expertise, yeah. and they'll review your work for you. Um, let you know if they think it's good, bad, areas you could work on. And then, um, you know, say... Yes, we advise that you accept this for publication, or no, we don't, or we think you need some revisions, do some additional experiments, that kind of thing. And so the end result, by doing a publication uh, and doing, let's say, a highly ranked one, that, uh, from what I'm hearing, 
gives clout uh, to right. It makes yes. it th- th- therefore easier to get grants. Exactly, exactly. Then, okay. So the higher ranked publications are more likely to be read by your colleagues. Sure. They're you know a little bit more widely distributed. Everyone's time is very you know important to them, and so people don't have time to read every single journal. So. Nine out of ten times, they turn to the best ones. Yes, um, yes. And so that's a really good way to get your, you know, work out. Another way is to attend conferences, and so we'll write up abstracts or, you know, presentations and submit those to conferences yeah. and um, attend those to get our work out as well. Um, and then, of course, actually doing the work. Right, right. <laughs> but you, in our pre-interview, you talked that you did, uh, I think you used the word, quote-unquote, roadshow with multiple sclerosis. Um over the past, I don't know, actually, I don't think you gave a timeline, but mm-hmm. it, previously you've done that. So that would be an example of uh, going around. And, and I guess that there's a, uh, an inherent amount of networking that goes along with that, too. So Absolutely. That, right. Okay, cool. And so I was hired by the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America to give talks around the country oh, to wow. educate both patients and physicians about multiple sclerosis and so as you can imagine those talks are very different yeah Um, but you know you generally give a talk to the the physicians they'd clear out and an hour later the patients would come in and you talk to them too and so it's you know education based and we can talk about this towards the end of the show as well but the msaa multiple sclerosis association of america is a fantastic resource where people can go to learn more about the disease fantastic and we are going to talk about that but first we need to talk about ms itself so um i am not a very clinical person so (laughs) i'm going to challenge you with the task of explaining what multiple sclerosis is in your own words and then if I have to sort of stop and have you break it down a little bit, don't be alarmed. Sure. It is absolutely going to happen. <laughs> but just go ahead. Because um, honestly, other than like Richard Pryor, I don't, re- I don't really have a, 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 a real understanding of what it is. It has, to my knowledge, something to do with... I'll let you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so... Multiple sclerosis, to be fair, is a very complicated disease. So it's unsurprising that you have a little bit of a cloudy understanding of it. Oh, good. Um, So multiple sclerosis is a disease of the central nervous system, which consists of your brain, your spinal cord, and also your optic nerve, which is the nerve that connects your eyeball to your brain. Sure. And so in multiple sclerosis, it's an autoimmune disease. So auto, your body attacks Ah. your uh, brain, spinal cord, and optic nerve because... It's the immune system, so autoimmune disease. And so, you know, there's other autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease where your bowels are involved or rheumatoid Mm. arthritis, your joints. With MS, it's the central nervous system. And so your immune system attacks your brain, spinal cord, and optic nerve. Um, But there are different subtypes of the disease. So the vast majority of people are diagnosed with relapsing remitting disease. And so relapsing remitting, or RRMS, presents as a period where you have an attack, um, where your immune system would attack your central nervous system, and then that immune attack would, uh, I guess, go back a little bit, and you would be able to heal. And so you'd have a relapse where you might have difficulty walking or present with some other symptoms, and then they'd go away, and your disease looks invisible. And so it comes and goes and comes and goes, which is why it's called relapsing remitting. Sure. So then uh, with that, if I have that... uh, 
is there a trend in terms of frequency? Uh, is it a consistent frequency? Mm-hmm. Or is it just like, I we're going to Cancun next week. So help me God, this better not come back. <laughs> or yeah. can you plan around it? Like Yeah, so- you absolutely can't plan around it, okay, which is so really tough. Very random. Um, yes. But, you know, you bring up the Cancun thing. Heat can exacerbate oh, really? relapses in some oh MS patients. And so they might not choose to go to Cancun. Right, they might head right. north for their vacations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, to get to the, you know, I guess, mechanism or background of it exactly. So in your brain, in your spinal cord, in your optic nerves, you have neurons and they're the fundamental cells of the central nervous system so they're responsible for transmitting the impulses that correspond to our thoughts and our movements and you know they keep your body running but the neurons require a lot of support okay and one of those support cells are called oligodendrocytes long word um, uh, but <laughs> let's all say it together oligodendrocytes <laughs> close <laughs> very close okay. oligodendrocyte but they oligodendrocyte. are responsible okay. for wrapping the neurons so the neurons are longer cells okay and so they have these long sheaths um that are axons wrapped in myelin and so the oligodendrocytes uh, wrap cells in myelin and the myelin acts as kind of an insulator so if you think about you know electrical wires that are surrounded by an insulator the wire is the neuron the insulator is the myelin okay and so in ms the immune system chews away at and attacks the myelin and so, you know, if you were to put your hand on a hot stove because of the myelin that's around your neurons, you would feel that, you know, in less than a second and yeah. pull your hand away. Yeah. But that myelin speeds up the, you know, impulse. And so if it's not there, you might put your hand on and it takes two seconds for you to feel, you know, Ooh. it slows down the impulses. Sure. And so that translates into you might fall a little bit more, you know, physical impairments, gait impairments, and yeah. also some impairments in the way your brain functions, cognitive, psychological, all of awesome. those things. Yeah, it sounds fun. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> and then in addition to the relapsing remitting, there's also progressive forms of the disease. Okay. They're a little bit less common. Only about 10% of all MS patients are diagnosed with primary progressive where you just have MS and it just starts to get worse from day one and you don't have those relapses. Hmm. And then there's also progressive relapsing which is kind of a combination of both where it you know, oh. progresses and you get relapses. Okay. And then finally, there's also secondary progressive, which is what relapsing remitting graduates to later. I see. And so uh, what, what are the typical ages for this? I mean, is it just, it, it can happen to anybody at any point in their life or is there a trend like we typically see it? Absolutely. So thankfully, d- the disease is pretty rare in kids. Okay. Uh, the average age of onset is about 20 to 50. And so oh that's God. a pretty big range. Yeah. But um, generally, you know, middle age is kind of where, you know, most people are diagnosed. Okay. Um, and there are a bunch of different components to the disease. The exact cause of the disease is unknown. But mm. we do know that there are hormonal, genetic, and environmental components to the disease. Really? Yes. Okay. And so hormonal in that, unfortunately for women we are more likely to develop MS than men. So recent studies show that um, it's about a three to one ratio of women to men who are impacted with MS. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, And then, um, and, you know, there's been some really interesting studies surrounding pregnancy. Pregnancy is actually protective against MS, so you're less likely to have a relapse. But then when you deliver your baby, you know, the hormone paradigm shifts, 
um, you're way more likely to have a relapse and it's more likely to be very severe. And so as a result, some women I know who have MS actually choose to not have children and adopt for that reason because they're worried that after they deliver, the relapse might be so severe that it would cause irreversible damage and then they're in a wheelchair with a new baby. Uh, and so... Um, wow, that's a decision to have. Sure. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. Um, um, wow. So, so we're, we've learned that this, is, this affects one million people in the U.S. at the moment and there's more than double previously reported. Yes. So okay. estimates, you know, a few years ago were about half a million people in the United States, but a recent study came out by a team of, you know, neurologists and biostatisticians that showed that the prevalence um, in incidence is actually much higher. They used um, health records, so everything from private insurance to Medicare to study 18 and older adults. Um, they used military records as well and developed this algorithm where they were more accurately able to predict how many people have MS based on you know, insurance claims, health records, all sure. of that, rather than previously reported, you know, kind of doctor, this is how many people have MS, I think, based right. on my survey. And so kind of cal back calculating it that way. So this is a much more accurate. So that have they established, like the big question for me is, has the, have they established some kind of trend that uh, it is growing, like the number of, uh, of people with MS is growing, is it plateaued, you know, what, have they determined any kind of data like that or, or outcomes like that? Sure. So they um, reported numbers from 2010 and 2017, and that number was growing. And so oh, based great. on those data, we would okay. estimate that the, the incidence is growing, but that could also be, an, you know, also a result of population growth. So. Okay. <laughs> So, so shifting gears, kind of back to a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of MS, um, are there cognitive repercussions or effects, I should say, uh, of, of, of MS on a body? Uh, obviously, there are physical ones, but cognitively, I mean, are you going to slowed speech, I guess, would be an example or... Well, I guess it's still kind of physical. Sure. I'll let you answer. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so yes, in short, absolutely. Um, because your brain is impacted and because the immune system attacks different areas of the brain in different patients, as you can imagine, a host of symptoms could be possible, including both psychological and cognitive abnormalities. Okay. And so MS is actually... Um, a, one of the neurological diseases with the highest rate of depression. Depression has been linked to inflammation, and so it's unsurprising that an inflammatory disease of the brain like MS would also have depression. Yeah, very and logical. And studies have shown that the rate of depression does not correlate with physical disability. So it's not like, oh, you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. Of course you'd be depressed. Right. It's not that. So, huh. um, you know, some people with MS, you know, they call it a silent disease because looking at the person, you may or may not be able to tell that they have MS. They might be in a remission right now or they might be, you know, coping with their symptoms really well. And so yeah. they're hiding it. And so um, depression is quite common. The uh, estimated prevalence of depression in MS is uh, lifetime prevalence is around 65 percent, whereas in the general population, it's less than 20 percent. Hmm. Um, and then also the cognitive function, as you alluded to earlier. So yeah. um, when MS was initially described back in the 1800s, 
the seminal description of the patient was, you know, physical abnormalities, but also marked enfeeblement of the mind. Hmm. But that was kind of pushed under the rug because around that same time, there was a split of neurologists and psychiatrists. So neurologists studied the brain, psychiatrists studied the mind. Right. And so those were considered two very different things, and they didn't overlap or mingle. Hmm. And so the cognitive impairment and depression stuff kind of was swept under the rug, and let's just study the obvious physical signs of MS. Right. And so even as recently as in the 1970s, it was estimated that only 3% of all MS patients have cognitive impairment. But now with patients you know, becoming more aware of the disease, speaking out, researchers focusing on this, we've now learned that you know, depending on the metrics of how you evaluate cognition in these patients, 40 to 70% of all MS patients experience some degree of cognitive impairment. Wow. So it's a very serious side effect and it can impact activities of daily living. Um, I think it's estimated that around half of all MS patients are either unemployed or underemployed within 10 years of their diagnosis, and that's attributed to impairments in cognitive function. Uh, okay, wow. So I, we've talked about a lot of different aspects in terms of uh, you know, exactly what the disease affects and, and all that kind of stuff, but let's talk about the research a little bit. One sort of, and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but uh, research has been going on for quite some time. Uh, how often is there like just a bombshell revelation with this, <laughs> right? I, I, and are they few and far between? Uh, or are we at a state with just with our technology and, and sciences uh, growing exponentially? Uh, especially here at 2019 with everything around us do we see uh just oh my whole john get over here look <laughs> at this petri dish you know <laughs> are there moments like that because i find that if 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 you know that would be very encouraging i would think that those mm -hmm. moments um do you see, do we see that still or has things plateaued or can you speak to that a little bit in terms of yeah, advanced, medical advancements? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> well, thankfully, yes. Awesome. Um, there are very rarely the moments in the lab when you're doing research where it's like, aha, this is a new discovery that's going to change the world because drug discovery is a very long and arduous process. Sure. However, with um, you know the advancements of technology, uh, research techniques and all of that, we are having many breakthroughs in the field of MS. So when I first started doing MS research, um, it's been nearly two decades now, um, I think there were five treatments for multiple sclerosis. And just this week, the FDA approved what I believe is the 15th or 16th treatment oh my. for MS. So it's been a very, very you know fruitful yeah. couple of decades. And so in addition to that, um, the first few medications were only injectable. And, you know, patients didn't like that. It's, you know. Oh, I hate needles. Yeah, yeah. And so now there are oral medications. Right. And so it makes it a little bit easier for patients. You can go to infusion clinics and you have to have an infusion in your arm, but only once a month. Right. And so it makes it much easier. Um, and so, like I said, a, a new treatment was approved just this past week for multiple sclerosis. So okay. advancements are being made, of course, as we, you know, dig deeper into the biology and have... Um, better techniques where we can understand the mechanism of the disease. And sure. so as we understand what's going on, 
you know, in more detail at a cellular level, we can develop treatments that target those specific molecular pathways. Right. Um, and then the longest part of the, well, one of the longest parts of the research project is actually running the clinical trials and getting those data. Well, we do live in a litigious society, so, we do. I, and, and uh, hey, it, it is what it is, and, and uh, I think we'd all rather uh, better safe than sorry. Than, Absolutely. Than, yeah. Uh, but so uh, let's talk about uh, if I'm uh, an MS patient and I have, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to make this sound. If I have the sort of common version of MS, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a typical MS patient mm -hmm. and I'm prescribed something. Mm -hmm. What am I going to notice? I obviously, well, your MS is going to, going to be not as MSy anymore, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but can you speak with a little bit more um, detail and much more uh, professional uh, <laughs> speak, uh, talk about what, what, yeah, what, what can someone uh, expect? Uh, how long does it take to settle in or anything like that? Sure. The parameters surrounding uh, treatment for MS. Absolutely. Well, um, it depends on what kind of treatment you try. And okay. so some treatments, um, the older treatments, the beta interferons, tend to have a lower side effect profile. Okay. And so, you know, you might get a little bit, you know, headaches or nausea or something like that. You might, you know, have a little rash at the injection site, something like that. The more recent drugs, which tend to be a bit more effective also come with a higher side effect risk profile in general. Okay. Um, so for example, there's Tysabri, natalizumab, and it's one, that's one of the drugs that's infused. And so that drug works by preventing the migration of immune cells from the periphery, from, you know, around your body yeah. into your brain. Okay. And so we don't want them to get into your brain or spinal cord it's to like be able a to filter, attack. like it, it, or just a wall or a block. Sort of. So there's a rolling mechanism that kind of happens. The lymphocytes or um, the white blood cells that uh, the immune cells that attack the brain, yeah. they kind of have to roll past the blood-brain barrier. So it's this network that separates your bloodstream from your brain because you don't want what's in your blood to necessarily get into your brain. So there's yeah. this nice wall made up of a variety of cell types that okay. prevents... So like bouncers at a nightclub. Sort of, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Um, and so the Tysabri or natalizumab prevents those activated immune cells from getting in through that blood-brain barrier. They kind of okay. help those bouncers. However, <laughs> however, mm -hmm. this is a newer drug? Somewhat newer. Um, it's been around for, I don't know, almost a decade now um but, but it does come one, yeah it, it does come with a risk and so around half of the population has this virus in their body called the jc virus okay and it really doesn't do anything um you'd, you'd never know um but when your immune system is weakened a bit which right. these drugs can do then the jc virus can rear its ugly head into something called PML, or progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which the disease is just about as scary as its name. Yeah, that just rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. And um, <laughs> there's no cure for that disease, and it often results in very irreversible neurological damage and or death. So, oh, wow. oh my. Yeah, so if you're on Tysabri or natalizumab, 
you are monitored for the JC virus. So I'll you're positive you or negative, and if you're negative, proceed. You know, but yeah. if you're positive, proceed with extreme caution, yeah. and you might want to switch to a different drug. And that was my next question. Right. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, well, I don't think I want the PML. Right. Very good. <laughs> uh, and and I do have JC. So what are my options, Doc? You have plenty other of options. other options. Um, there are a couple of great drugs that work on your lymph nodes, um, okay. which are kind of organs, little tiny, tiny little organs in your periphery that are responsible for generating immune cells. And when immune cells um, get sequestered in there into your lymph nodes, um, in MS they tend to leave and attack the body. But there's drugs that can keep your immune cells in the lymph nodes, so uh -huh. kind of keeps them, you know, at home and stay put and don't wreak any havoc on our immune system. And so, um, so like babysitters instead of yeah, bouncers. instead of bouncers, <laughs> yeah. sure, Got sure. Um, okay. And so there was one great drug that. Um, it was approved for that use, but it also had, you know, the side effect profile of, you know, maybe some headaches, dizziness, et cetera. Sure. But after the first dose, it also causes your heart rate to go down. Oh. And so it does go back to normal, you know, in 99% of patients within, you know, six hours or so. Oh, okay. Um, but in those other patients, it may not. And so then... The FDA this week just approved another drug called Mazent, which um, is a little bit more specific. It works on, you know, a very specific subclass of those receptors. So they're thinking it might lower that cardiac side effect profile. Okay. And so that's, you know, to speak to the breakthrough moments, you know, we're optimizing existing drugs. So this drug works yeah. pretty well, but here's a negative side effect of it. And so researchers work to develop a drug that maybe wouldn't have that side effect so it's even better and safer oh, yeah and that's that's available to the public soon? yeah it was just approved and okay. so yeah prescriptions are a oh, go wow. um wow. but with awesome. all ms drugs it can be very cost prohibitive so insurance is very yeah. important with this yeah. disease i can imagine i, I think it imagine. retails at like eighty thousand dollars a year oh wow yeah wow <laughs> if yeah. you're gonna pay cash so yeah <laughs> Jeez. Uh, okay. But that in, in, in terms of what's available right now, though, uh, from what I'm hearing is, is that's as close as you can get to having your cake and eating it, too, in terms of uh, treatment for MS. Well, I, I don't think that all patients should go out and try this drug specifically. Oh, yeah. oh, no, no. Yeah, time out. <laughs> don't do anything that we're talking about without <laughs> consulting your physician first. So if you're listening to this and you and or your loved one have MS, by no means go out and just take this drug if you have $80,000 hanging out in your pocket. <laughs> so just, again, just making legal happy here. Please consult your physician before doing anything that we are talking about today. This is purely uh, a discussion to educate and enlighten uh, folks who are interested or suffer from MS. So uh, back to the regularly programmed uh, yes. <laughs> show. So, but relatively speaking, though, I mean, that sounds to me like you've kind of taken, all right, like you said, just sort of uh, updated a current treatment by tweaking it curbing a cur curbing mm -hmm. a potential side effect it's still for some amount of the population right so like right well, i it's mazen you said mazent yes. mazent mm -hmm. right you know some poor guy takes it and then uh, oh man there goes my heart rate <laughs> so it could still happen yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we're yes. all different yes. Yes. now 
Um, the, obviously, there are a lot of uh, quote-unquote pharmaceutical-style drugs, but um, this is kind of a two-part question. Are there what are are there any like sort of natural ingredients uh, that kind of just from the earth that are the core or the start of any of these drugs? Um, and then the second part of that question: Are there any holistic sort of things that you can do uh, with diet or anything like that to sort of uh, curb the effects of MS or, or make life with MS maybe just a little bit more tolerable, we'll sure, say. Sure, sure. Um, and so for the first part of your question, um, one of the most important things people with MS can do, particularly those who live in northern latitudes, so further away from the equator, where the, the um, prevalence of MS is actually higher, yeah. um, is get your vitamin D levels tested. Okay. Because with um, studies have shown that vitamin D has low vitamin D levels have been linked to increased risk of MS. Right. And so you can take a vitamin D supplement very easily if you have low vitamin D levels. And, you know, research studies have shown that it can improve your MS symptoms. Right. And so it's a really easy way, you know, inexpensive way right. to. Sure. So if you're that. female and you're in Florida right now, get your vitamin D levels checked. Because you never know. Well, if you're a female in Maine. Yeah, other direction. Yeah. Closer to the equator is better because the way that your body makes vitamin D is through sunlight exposure. So I thought that would... Oh. But see, now that's interesting because like heat... Doesn't heat perpetuate MS? It can for some patients, yes. Okay. Yes. That's kind of where my head was at. Right, right. Maybe this will have no, to No, it's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go over that again. So so it's more if you're in an area that doesn't get a lot of sunlight. Mm -hmm. If you're a, uh, let's say you like to do puzzles more than anybody, um, you really want to make sure you're getting your, your vitamin D levels. And let's say you crank the heat in your house too, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, all right. Well, that thank you for clarifying because sure. I really went down the, the wrong path with that. Sure. So, yeah, sunlight um, exposure is great, and it's it, really great to monitor your vitamin D year-round because, okay. as you can imagine, in the summer, your vitamin D levels might be okay from the sunlight and sure. endogenous production of vitamin D, whereas in the winter, you might need a little bit of help keeping your vitamin D levels at the appropriate cool. amount. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so that's a pretty easy thing you can do. Um if you're experiencing physical or cognitive side effects, um, rehab is a great first approach. So um, physical rehab, you know, is pretty oh. obvious in terms of if you have a foot drop or gait impairments, you can work with your physical therapist to, you know, work through those issues or use mobility devices that might help you get around yeah. because... You know, as you can imagine, it might be harder for an MS patient to walk up a flight of stairs in URI. And when they're drained, yeah. then it's more likely to, you know, affect other areas of their life. And so, you know, using all of the available tools you sure. can. Sure. Um, so, but I, one thing I wanted to, to, I was curious about is, with, again, with the pharmaceutical drugs, are there any that are, um, I'm trying to think of an example elsewhere where there's like there's like a natural component that's just been kind of modified or souped up and turned into like a pharmaceutical like pill made by a company. You know what I mean? Like the active ingredient in this is orange peel. Sure. Like, sure. you know, I, that's. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at some, you know, ginkgo biloba for okay. memory, for example. Um, 
one early trial showed that it improved cognition in MS patients, but when they, you know, looked at a little bit larger of a patient cohort, it didn't really have an effect. Okay. Okay. And so none of the existing treatments right now um, that are approved by the FDA are, you know, a natural compound sure. like that. Or, you know, they did some work with curcumin and some other. Yeah. So it's um, it's rock star chemists coming up with and really doing their thing. At this point, yes. Okay. Yes. Now, uh, I have seen, I think on Netflix or something, uh, a woman with MS like totally changed what she ate. And it really seemed to help for her. Mm-hmm. really seem to help uh, mitigate, I'll say, the effects of her MS. Sure. So do you know, like, uh, <laughs> I think I, I didn't really retain what exactly she changed. <laughs> I think it had probably a lot to do with fruits and vegetables because <laughs> that seems to <laughs> fix a lot of things. But are there actual specific foods mm-hmm. that are directly related for most people uh, to mitigating MS. Sure, sure. So um, with most, most patients, it's not eat more Doritos. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there has been some research into diet, and there has been some support for the Mediterranean diet, mm. so diets that are pretty high in omega fats, the healthy fats, because, sure. you know, your myelin, your, the wrap yep. around the neuron, is made of fat. Right. And so that's one of the primary components of it. And so... That's unsurprising, but um, I think one of the um, important points you made was the personal personalized component of that. For her, yeah. it worked. And yeah. so, you know, we all know people who are gluten intolerant or avoid gluten because that causes inflammation in their body. So if that causes inflammation and they have MS, then that gluten really wouldn't agree with them. Yeah, yeah. And so for some people, that's dairy. For some people, you know, sure. it's different components of their diet. So so, you, so, so two, two MS patients walk into a pizzeria and one can only have the cheese and the sauce <laughs> and the other one can only have the sauce and, and, and the crust. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, yes. I, okay. Um, and so, you know... Figuring out in your diet what makes you feel the best and the healthiest sure, is something sure. that you need to explore. Unfortunately, there's no one-size-fits-all, eat these five foods and you're going to feel great. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, more fruits and vegetables are generally a pretty good way to start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Staying away from McDonald's, all that good kind of sure. stuff. Sure. Uh, so we're winding down here. This has been incredible. I've, I now know about MS, uh, which is <laughs> good. cool. Um, uh, oh, oh. One thing I, I, I want to ask is, let's say, uh, hey, I'm turning 40 this year, and let's say the second half of my life is MS. How do I start, when would I, how would I start noticing if I were to get MS? Like, what are the sort of indicators? Sure. Right. Um, so most patients, when they initially go to the neurologist and say, you know, I think there's a problem, they notice that they're tripping more than usual okay. and, you know, some gait impairments and things like that. Um, a lot of people say, you know, little minor cognitive abnormalities, like I, I'm always losing my keys now, or I can't seem to remember where I placed this certain item or where my car is in the parking lot, or, you know, they're noticing little declines there. Um, and then another really common thing are, um, vision impairments. And so, you know, blurrier vision, because Mm. as we discussed, the optic nerve is impacted by MS and the retina can actually degenerate a little bit as okay. a result. Now, so. are there are there patients that only have, like, it, th- my MS only affects my eyes? 
Or is, does that exist? Or my MS only affects, like, I just trip a lot. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because, um, you know, the immune system can attack different areas of the brain or spinal cord in different patients. Yes, yeah. everyone presents with different symptoms. Interesting. And so that's what makes MS a particularly difficult disease to study <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. it's not homogeneous at all. Right. Um but yeah, some people have much more severe physical. Some people have much more severe cognitive, psychological. Um, so yeah, it's hmm. it's across the board. So um, like I said, we're, we're winding down. Thank you for addressing that. I, I can't believe I forgot to ask that. I, I just how you can go and because you, as we established earlier, it's a, it's so rare in children. So it's. It's 20 to 50 is the bulk of the patient population, right? Uh, the age MS. of diagnosis. The age yes. of diagnosis, correct. So it just, it's interesting to me to, so what, cha what, what changes would you notice? So thank you for clarifying. I think sure. that's really helpful for people. Um, so speaking of helping people, as we wind down here, where can we get information? Obviously, this podcast has been a great sort of 101 and mm -hmm. more, I think. Uh, so, but if I'm, again, if I uh, have been recently diagnosed, think I might have it, or I have a friend or a family member, where am I going to go to get more information aside from my physician? Sure, sure. So, um, the two main resources are what I mentioned previously, the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America, okay. msaa.org. Um, and they cater to the patients generally um okay. you know they they do support across the board um but the msaa is wonderful in that they have a lot of patient outreach programs oh, and cool. so there are different regional directors ours happens to be a wonderful woman named lauren hooper who covers the northeast area but um i've worked with kyle and amanda and all you know all the other regional directors yeah. and they're all lovely people Awesome. Um, you can, you know, find their information on the MSAA website, reach out to them, and they can let you know about programs and educational seminars that are coming to your area that you could go to learn right. more about specific aspects of the disease. So it's, hey, Lauren, I'm in 17055. What do you got? What's going on in yeah. the next couple of months? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, are there any other uh, channels? Well, I do want to mention also the MSAA has a great program where they distribute cooling vests for people. So if some are coming up, um, you can go to msaa.org and you know search the cooling vest program because you know we talked about how heat right. can exacerbate yeah. MS, and so they distribute these cooling vests that you can wear um, under your clothes in the summer that can help keep your body temperature sure. a little bit lower and, and that may you're help. Planning that trip to Cancun, right, right. Make sure you pack that vest. There you go. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to MSAA.org, there's also the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, or NMSS. Okay. Now, the NMSS is a little bit different from MSAA. They're both you know, national organizations, but the NMSS actually supports scientific research. So the okay. MSAA raises money that's going to go directly back to the patients. The NMSS does put money back toward the patients, but they also um, fund research. Okay. Like I've had a couple of NMSS grants that fund the development of okay. some new drugs. Well, that's going to be my next question. Yeah. Yes. Okay, yes. cool. Um, it's a wonderful organization that helps support scientists making advancements that way. Awesome. Uh, but both websites are great in terms of, you know, they list all of the available treatments and alternative treatments that, you know, you might want to explore, how to talk to your neurologist about MS, any other questions that you might have, some outreach programs, et cetera. So those are the two main cool. most comprehensive 
Gotcha. Which I would recommend. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for stopping by and talking with us today. We learned so much about MS and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Our guest today was Kristen Hollinger of Johns Hopkins University. To learn more about multiple sclerosis, check out the show notes on the Continuum blog at vibrahealthcare.com slash blog. If you enjoyed our conversation with Kristen, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes as they're released.